Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, and welcome to episode 4-337 of the Run Run Live podcast. And today we're going to continue our exploration of the relationship between addiction and endurance sports with longtime friend of the show, Greg. I recorded this interview a few weeks ago, the same week that I spoke with Nate, so I was using that discussion as a starting point with Greg to till some new ground. So I think it's I think it's a good addition to that conversation. In section one, I'll give you my Boston Marathon 216 walkthrough. In section two, I'll give you a post I wrote on innovation that has a business slant, but you folks are smart enough to tease out how it all applies to your personal lives as well. And remember, no Harry's Razor ads here because then my kids don't go to school. That's right. One of the companies I was on the leadership team of sold a good-sized deal to Gillette back in the day, and they make those expensive razor blades everybody's trying to disintermediate. So if we hadn't sold that deal, I wouldn't get my bonus, and my kids, they'd be street urchins now. And that's why we're ad-free and listener-supported, to keep my kids off the street. To keep the lights on, we have created a members-only content, and by signing up for a membership, you'll get access to exclusive members-only audio. And I'm working on right now my Eastern States race report and, of course, something funny for Eric. You also get each episode the individual audio segments as individual MP3s, so you can download and listen to those at any time. And I'll consider other things as they're requested, because when you're a member, it's all about you. And I'd like to welcome new members Ken, Rebecca, Fody, and Greg for helping keep the kids off the street over here at Run Run Live. The Boston piece in this show is a bit long, so I'll keep my intro comments brief. I'm in my taper for Boston. I knocked out my last real workout on Sunday with a nine-mile pace run. That was, again, right where I need to be. The weather looks decent now. I just have to have a good day. And I'm trying to eat clean and eat relatively lightly this week. I'm locked down. I've got no travel until next week, and I've got enough projects to keep me busy. 
it's still very stressful to sit around and try to stay calm. And so it's time to line up for Boston again. When this episode drops, it will be Friday before Patriots Day. Somewhere around 20 years ago, I started running again and ran my first Boston Marathon. And it had its way with me that first year. It taught me a lesson about what the marathon distance expects from a runner. And Boston expects even more. And when I first started running Boston, it was still a mostly local affair. We had our fans and acolytes among the serious runners of the world, but it was still a local race with a local tradition. When the rest of the world didn't care very much about city marathons, we had a deeply embedded heroic culture and mythology that was already a century old. We grew up with the marathon in our lives here in New England. Boston shaped the long-distance road-running culture in Boston and New England. The spring and fall race calendars revolved around it. You were either training for Boston or training to qualify for Boston. Seasons of training and racing that had a nice, comfortable cadence. And some things have changed, but things always change in this world. It's still the greatest marathon in the world, and it's still our marathon. Over the last couple of years, Boston has become a bit of a white whale for me, but I'm working on that. I know I can't keep doing it forever, and the new standards and new qualification window cadence really force it uncomfortably into my life. I'm completely grateful to have had the privilege of this old race in my life. I'm grateful to have been able to meet the great men and women who have written their stories there. Time is a river. And you can never step in the same water twice. But I'm happy to have gotten my feet wet when I had the chance. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Boston Marathon 2016 Walkthrough. Let me give you my walkthrough of what to expect at Boston, not an exhaustive, detailed review, just some things to consider. Because the best advice I could give you for this race is already irrelevant. That advice would be to respect the course and train well. If you have not trained well, there's not much you can do at this point. Number one, let's start with the weather. Monday this year, looks like it will be partly cloudy, about 60 degrees, with a light breeze. That's not bad weather for racing. Of course, all that could change in the next few days. It has in the past. And when you're packing or planning for the race, pay attention to the forecast and specifically what the day before and the day after look like. If the weather is going to shift, it's going to look like one of those. When you're looking at an event like this, you may be leaving for the start in the morning and not getting back into Boston until the afternoon. The temperature in the morning will be 20 to 30 degrees colder than at midday. When you leave to head out to Hockington, bring enough throwaway stuff for a range of temperatures. Bring an old blanket or a poncho or a space blanket or a big towel or a large trash bag. It's a grass field in Hockington, and you'll need something to sit on and something to keep you warm while you wait. Sometimes a front will roll through during the day, and you'll be faced with different sets of conditions during the race. The topography of the course and the timing will influence what you get where. Qualified runners will be leaving Hockington between 10 and 11.30, 
and this means the weather will get warmer for you until around Heartbreak Hill. On a spring day, the temperature starts to drop around 233 if you're still on the course. Also, when you drop down into Boston after mile 22, you'll start to pick up the ocean breeze. And this is typically a headwind and it's a bit cooler. The combination of timing and sea breeze means that if you're suffering at the end, you'll be tested by hypothermia with that headwind adding to your misery. You might want to hang onto your gloves or hat or arm warmers instead of throwing them away early. Number two, don't get caught up in the excitement if you're planning to race. I've seen plenty of people come to Boston and spend the weekend on their feet at the expo and walking around the city. It's a great walking city, but if you have invested in training and plan to race, don't leave your legs at the expo or at the public gardens rest. Number three, it's a long day. Take it easy. When Monday finally arrives, it's still a long day. Our little race has turned into a bit of a logistical nightmare for participants. Unfortunately, there are no longer any check bags at the start. Whatever you bring to Hawkington has to stay there. Bring enough food and fluid to get you through the morning. Get some disposable containers of whatever you're going to need before the race. Maybe bring a newspaper or something else to keep you busy that you can throw away. You can build a little nest of disposable items and relax. Do your stretching, do some meditation, take a nap, save your energy for the race. Don't expect to be able to meet up with friends unless you have a very specific place and time to meet them. It's a madhouse in Hopkinton. You're not going to randomly find people. Number four, start slow. You know, this advice is especially for the qualified runners. Because of the efficiency of the qualification system, and the corrals in Hopkinton, you will get on your pace almost immediately. There is none of that waiting for the pack to spread out like you would get at any other city marathon. There is a reverse funnel start, and you can run as fast as you want from the get-go. And this efficient system means that the start for qualified runners is like the start of a thousand-person marathon. This coupled with the steep downhill sections out of Hopkinton doesn't give runners that early pace throttling that you might get at other races. The number one advice for qualified runners at Boston is to start slow and let the race come to you. If you let yourself get sucked into the celebration, you'll be five miles in before you realize how far off pace you are. Have some patience. Now for non-qualified runners, and I have started in both places, the start is going to be just like any other 10,000 person city marathon. You'll be running up against people running all paces, running three or four abreast, and weaving about like lunatics. You'll be hard-pressed to run faster than 10-minute miles in the first couple. You'll have to be patient and not waste your energy fighting the tide. It'll open up eventually. Number five, it's a hilly course with four main sections. And I wonder sometimes if anyone actually looks at the elevation map. I hear people talking about how Boston is a downhill course, but it's much more nuanced than that. Those nuances can be devilish. Boston is a net downhill course, but that doesn't make it all downhill. The race starts at 450 feet and ends at sea level. This is New England. It's all rolling hills. Nothing major until the Newton Hills, but don't go into it expecting a consistently downhill course or any totally flat bits. Section 1, 
downhill out of Hockington. In the first four miles, you're going to lose 200 feet. Again, it's rolling hills, so some of these drops are fairly steep. You've got to manage your legs and your stride on this section so as not to burn out the quads. It's easy to run free and easy when you're fresh and the course is downhill, but you've got to keep your form tight and save your legs. This section will get you to Ashland. Section 2, flatter and down into Newton Lower Falls. After the initial four-mile drop out of Hawkington to Ashland, it's a long section where it flattens out a bit. There are still rolling hills, but most of these are less than 50 feet, give or take, in elevation. There's a long stretch in Framingham that is almost entirely flat and slightly downhill from just before the 10K to around 9.5 miles. From 9.5 miles through the Scream Tunnel, it's more rolling hills and a slight climb. This section ends after Wellesley, around 15.5 miles, where there is a steep downhill into Newton Lower Falls. This is where the Newton Hills start, and you can't miss it. Once you cross the river in the center of town, as I like to say, it starts to suck. Whether your last 10 miles is a slice of hell or a victory trot is dependent on how you manage your pace and form in those first 16 miles. This second section is where you really need to tighten it up and focus on relaxing into the pace, biding your time and being patient. If you can manage the first steep bit and the second section with patience and discipline, you can handle the hills. I think the second section is perhaps more dangerous than the first steep downhill bits. People forget their discipline here. It should feel too slow if you're pacing it right. Section 3, the Newton Hills. As you start up out of Newton Lower Falls over Route 128, you begin the first of the Newton Hills. This is a five-mile section from 16 to 21 that starts at 50 feet of elevation and ends at the top of Heartbreak Hill, around 250 feet. This happens over the course of four reasonably sized hills. The first one is up and out of Newton Lower Falls over the highway at mile 16. This one climbs about 65 feet. The course rolls a bit then until it hits the next short steep hill at 17 and three quarters where it gains another 60 feet or so. And this one gives you the 60 feet of elevation back with a bit of a downhill into around 19 and a quarter miles where you start to climb the third hill. Now you could actually call this third hill part of Heartbreak Hill. This hill climbs back to 60 feet, peaking at about 19 and a half. It doesn't drop from there. It just flattens out until just before 20 and slams you into the last climb, Heartbreak. Heartbreak is a gain of 80 to 90 feet over the course of a half a mile. It's not a giant hill. If you have trained well and controlled yourself through the first two sections, you can start to accelerate through these hills. Because once you get to the top, it's downhill and flat to the finish. The nature of these hills and where they are on the course make them bigger than they appear on paper. If you ran frivolously in the first 16 miles or didn't train well, they'll grind you up. Think about it. You're 16 through 21 miles into the race, and it puts you through these series of short, steep grinders with no real relief until you come out the other end. 
And there's a tricky psychological element to this section as well. All the people who have misread their fitness or underestimated the course crash here. No matter where you are in the pack, people will be doing the death shuffle all around you when you get to Heartbreak Hill. You have to not get sucked into that well of defeated souls. Run your race, hold your form, stick to your plan, stay in your head. And the shame of this is that if you can manage your race well, the last five miles is fast as hell. If you get to the top of heartbreak with your legs still under you, you can negative split into the finish. To run the hills well is to make sure you don't spend your capital earlier in the race. Hold back because you know this is coming. Then it's simply a matter of more discipline. Don't attack the early hills. Hold your pace and your form and let them come to you. As you get closer to heartbreak, you can start feeding a bit more gas into the engine if you feel fresh. Section 4. The Race Into the Finish After you crest Heartbreak Hill, there is one little false summit that freaks people out, but don't worry. You're done climbing hills for the most part. This section of the course drops down into the slump of Boston. From miles 21 to 24, you're going to lose 320 feet or so. It's a very fast section. If you still have your legs, you can make up a lot of time here. At mile 24, you hit the flat streets of Boston. From here on, it's flat, except for two little bumps. The first little bump is the overpass over the Mass Pike at mile 25. It's only a 40-foot bump over a tenth of a mile, but sometimes it feels like Mount Everest. The second is the underpass with less than a mile to go right before you turn under Hereford. It's only maybe 15 feet of loss and gain, but it's a pain in the ass late in the race. Hereford itself has a little climb to it, but by then you can smell the barn. There is still some race left when you turn the corner onto Boylston. This can dishearten runners who think the finish line is going to be right there when they turn the corner. It's maybe, I don't know, a third of a mile to the mats, but you can see it, so you can tough it out. The last couple miles are on the city streets, and the roads have some wear and tear. There are some lumpy patches that can be tiresome on tired feet. Be careful and watch your feet. This last flat section into the finish is also where another cadre of people lose hope. People will just stop in front of you or fall down, and you have to keep your head up. Like I mentioned before, there's typically a sea breeze in your face as you get to this last section. How do you run this last section? Your best bet is to come off heartbreak with some juice left so you can negative split the downhills into 24. And after 24, it's just a matter of holding on. If you're a marathoner, you know the drill. Recommendations. This will be my 18th Boston. I've run it many different ways. My PR on the course was actually a day I ran a suicide pace early and managed to hold on well enough at the end. You can race it end-to-end -end if you're in good enough shape and you have the miles under your belt. I've also trained poorly and death-marched at least <laughs> half a dozen of these races. If you're new to the course or a mid-packer like me, I would recommend really holding back in the first 16 miles. It's not easy. You have to consciously hold yourself back. Having a pacing buddy works well. My best race at Boston, not my fastest, 
I ran with a friend, and we held each other in check through the early miles. And then I slowly turned up the heat, accelerating through the hills, and negative splitted the race by several minutes. There's nothing quite as compelling as blowing by all the walking dead as you cruise through the hills. It really depends on you and your training. If you go out slow, you can make up that time in the last five miles. If you go out too fast, there is no place to recover, and the hills will grind you up. Enjoy your race, everyone. I'll see you out there. And now for today's featured interview. Welcome. Now, you've been a listener of the Runner and Live podcast, I know this, for like seven years. <laughs> you've been cyber-stalking me, tracking my downloads? No, no, because I remember our early interactions way, 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 way back. So you've seen me kind of grow and um, change over the years as well, which is interesting. Yeah, a nice evolution, I have to say. Yeah, you were the guy who went out and started his own practice based on some uh, essay I wrote, right? <laughs> Something about taming your dragons or demons and going after what you're afraid of, something along those lines. So I get this email <laughs> popped in my inbox, goes, yep, I decided to start my own company because of your podcast. I'm like, whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa, I didn't even know anybody was listening. <laughs> so anyhow, there, our topic that I'm noodling, I'm doing sort of a series on these, is uh, the sort of the relationship between alcohol and running. I think we all know there's this correlation Sure. Uh, just sports in general, and running specifically, you were telling me your story about the Hash House Harriers. Say that ten times fast. And uh, which is another running club with a drinking problem. The running is kind of an excuse to go and get hammered. I mean, right? I don't know if you actually know the history, but that group started in the 1930s in Kuala Lumpur with a, a bunch of drinkers who were, who were meeting up at the bar, British expats in Malaysia. And they said, you know, this is kind of boring. Let's run here. Let's not do the same route every time. Let's kind of make it interesting. And so they came up with these symbols to indicate different, whether you've gone the wrong way or, or uh, whether it's a circle, it could be any direction and things like that. And had a little party at the end, which they called the down downs. There was a um, little ceremony to that that's been going on for, wow, 80 odd years now. And the hash runs I've done, there's been like hidden alcohol along the course too. Oh, well, I guess you guys did it better than the Muscovites so, that I ran with. So the down downs on course. So, you know, given we have this correlation between alcohol and running, the next question is, is it a good thing or a bad thing? And then what can we do about it, right? And you're coming from an interesting perspective. Why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and what your perspective on this is? Sure. Again, my name is Greg Milborn. I uh, live in suburban Pennsylvania. And as Chris mentioned, I started running about eight years ago in some sort of competitive way. Didn't do much before that. In fact, was a good 35 pounds heavier than I am now. And uh, got into running as part of needing to kind of fill that void in my life. About 20 years ago, I was using alcohol in a way that was problematic and decided to stop. I was living and working overseas in, in uh, Russia, and believe it or not, AA is over there, and, and so started to do that. But as I was telling Chris, my social group was the hash. So I continued to run, and what was interesting for me was that in my drinking days, I was kind of a little bit on the periphery. But once I got sober, I was more of a leader in the group. And that kind of reinforced that sobriety was a good thing for me. But fast forward a few years, I guess 12 years into it, I would had gotten my 
doctorate in psychology, been married a few years. We had two young kids and a buddy of mine came to my 40th birthday party and he had run 16 miles that day and I just looked at him like he had three heads. And But what was more interesting was that as our kids who were the same age were toddling around the, the house, he was keeping up with them and I was winded just watching them. So I realized that I wasn't in shape like I wanted to be. I started running and once I started running, he's like, hey, you know, why don't you come out to this race? And once I started racing, I kind of caught the bug. And I now in my practice, I call myself a bit of an exercise enthusiast because I frequently quote to my clients that there is no double blind study that can beat exercise for antidepressant effects. The way that our bodies self-regulate dopamine and serotonin is through movement and exercise. I'm a huge proponent and now I run and bike and swim, but um, mostly I just try and burn the crazy off uh, for a few minutes every day. Yeah, absolutely. It's that little hit that you need to uh, keep you going there. Yeah. That's good. In that sense, running can be an addiction. We see that. Yeah, and I've heard you, you use that, and I'm not going to completely disagree with you, but addiction has this big pejorative, and really it comes from how is it negatively impacting your life? In other words, what kinds of sacrifices is it pursuing this causing you to have, and are those cost offsets worthwhile? And in that way, I certainly think you can see runners who are addicted. I mean, they run through broken legs or through injury and they continue to cause themselves bodily harm. And when you're in that level of commitment or compulsion, I think that's an addiction. But if you're just going out there and you're spending a few minutes running with your friends or, or doing it on your own and it's helping you feel better, I'm not necessarily sure that even if it's a regular thing that you feel like you have to do, that that meets the threshold of an addiction. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think you've got the first thing you said was the differentiator, which is does the cost outweigh the benefit, right? right? And I train at a very high level, an unnecessarily high level for someone in my position in life, but uh, the cost doesn't outweigh the benefit. The benefit I get from that is not only, like you said, the stress relief and the clarity of mind and the satisfaction of doing something, but it, it really is an anchor or a uh, compass in my life that I can sort of wrap everything else around. So for me, it enables all sorts of other lifestyle things that are very positive in the balance, right? Sure. And I mean, times in my life when I haven't exercised as much, I find that I'm not able to perform my job as effectively as a, and efficiently. So to call that which enables me to do well in the vast majority of my life by a pejorative term like an addiction, I'm not necessarily sure that that fits. Yeah, I'm with you. I've seen running as part of an addiction with people, specifically people who have body dysmorphia or uh, eating disorders. Oh, yeah. And they'll use running as just another part of that addict. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. And I do think you do need to be careful. As I mentioned a minute ago, if you're causing harm or injury to yourself, then it certainly would meet the criteria of, of an addiction. And there are definitely people who can become addicted to exercise in a negative way that they don't take in enough calories, put off all kinds of social things. You really need to ask, what is the impact of your behavior on your wider circle of life, your friends, your family, your job? If you're not able to do support yourself because of your running, then that's, I think, by definition, a, a problem. Yeah, and it's a tough call, too, because we all have those situations where, where we only have time to do one thing and we have to choose what it is, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's just the nature of life is you have to balance that, what I call, portfolio. Mm -hmm. And that means sometimes you can't give every all your chips on one thing. Sure. You move around a little bit. So when you look at uh, substance abuse or these sort of uh, alcohol addictions, these sort of things in your practice, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that 
we're finding out these days? What have we learned in the recently? We've had advances in everything. We must have advances in this science as well. I mean, I think we're finding that um, addiction, there's a number of physical and social consequences to it. Typically, in the tail end of an addiction, you become very isolated because you tend to only want to associate with people who are doing similarly to yourself, and that circle will narrow over time. So if you're somebody who can't sit down without a six-pack, you tend to gravitate to other people who need at least a, a six-pack themselves, that type of thing. So you find people who are coming into treatment often a bit isolated and also because of the sacrifices they've made to their drugs and alcohol, typically not well-maintained physically. A lot of the rehabs in the area have as a component of treatment exercise, meditation, and yoga because a lot of what people are doing in their addictions is trying to modulate and regulate their anxiety and their stress. And mm. uh, once you take away the substance, it takes a while for their homeostasis to resettle. So that using exercise as a medicine can be very beneficial for kind of taking that edge off and, and helping people feel positively about themselves when it seems like a lot of their world may be crashing down. Yeah, so sort of getting in front of it and realizing that, that there, you're going to have that loss and that, that void and getting ahead of it with a positive stimulus. Yeah, I mean, whether it be the vigorous aerobic exercise, which I, there's a lot of recent benefit that 20 plus minutes of hard aerobics, the Tabata type exercising, has such a, a long lasting effect on our organism. But if you don't have time for something like that, you can do some deep breathing. I don't know if you're familiar with Andrew Weil's 478 breathing technique where you breathe in for a count of four, you hold it for a count of seven, and you breathe out for a count of eight. I'll use that if I need to relax during the day or if I'm trying to fall asleep and I'm feeling a little amped at night, and it really helps you settle down. One of the things I've found that situationally, I'm in a lot of situations where I can't just sit back and say, well, I'm too stressed out right now. I have to meditate. Sorry, I'm going to have to end this meeting. It's too <laughs> stressful for me. Right. But what you can do is you can take a couple of deep breaths. Sure. And when you're doing your practice, whether it's running or meditation or whatever, that's essentially a breathing exercise. Mm -hmm. And if you can mindfully associate that deep breath with the relaxation, uh, you can still get a lot of benefits from one or two deep breaths and nobody will know what you're doing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you can sneak it in. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because one of the things that you know happens in therapy, since that's what my primary job is as a you know psychotherapist, I see people and couples and families. But oftentimes when they're getting more and more agitated, I'm slowing my metabolism down. I'm taking deep breaths. And as they watch me and, and are around my energy, they slowly start to calm down. So it's not even like that I have to say something to try and reduce the tension in the room. Sometimes just by taking some deep breaths, that has a resonating effect with them as well. Yeah, that's true. There's always that mirror effect when you're in person with people that they will unconsciously mirror whatever your stress level is. Yeah. Yeah. So you were talking before about some stuff that they're doing in uh, Europe and other places where well, you don't have to just totally go cold turkey on the addiction, but you can sort of take the air out of the addiction. Yes. I mean, for a lot of people, it is helpful to do 90 days without drugs and alcohol, just to, because three months is, is a good rule of thumb for how long it takes to break a habit. Just like, the same way on the other end, I kind of challenge or encourage people to try and work out for 90 days because that can also establish a positive attribute. But motivational interviewing is, is kind of a therapeutic technique and a, a bit of a movement in Europe to really look at, or harm reduction as I, I think it's called over there, is to ask open-ended questions about 
people who seem to be showing signs and symptoms of drug and alcohol addiction, rather than going directly at the drugs and alcohol, ask them more open-ended questions about what it is that they want for their lives. And frequently, when you stop, I'm laughing because you've got a, a little picture of yourself as a, as a sheriff pointing a gun. When you stop trying to tell people, put your weapon down, put your drugs and alcohol down, and ask them what they want, they will start to reflect more of their own inner ambivalence about, well, you know, yeah, I, it really takes the edge off and I really like it and I'm really, you know, I enjoy my friends at the bar, but I kind of don't get a lot of work done before 11 the next day. I'm dragging a lot. I do have a kind of headache or a little bit of acid reflux. And my doctor said it probably has something to do with my drinking. And by not being as confrontational oftentimes and not insisting that they stop outright, you'll often get better treatment effects. You'll get them to reduce the amount of harm that they're doing, you know, at least stop drinking and driving or taking a fifth home at the end of the, each day, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, so get some benefit. Right, and that may be Cause, enough. Yeah, because with any of these things, whether it's alcohol or any kind of addiction, it's really the addiction sort of the symptom of some underlying right. issue. I mean, usually right? it's some sort of failure to regulate a, a strong emotion, be it positive or negative. And so having more tools in your toolbox, a better diet, making sure you're getting more sleep, looking at other ways to cope with and tolerate both anxiety as well as depression often can lead to a simple reduction because once you're feeling better, then you don't have to turn to booze to try and take the edge off all the time. And do you work with people? I talk about triggers a lot, right? Where you, you have certain points in your day or in your life where something happens and it's a trigger, certain emotions are a trigger. And these are what habits are based on, right? So you've got it burned in that when this thing happens, you do this thing or you feel this way. How do you break those triggers? Well, it's interesting. There's a, there's a book I'm looking at uh, called Calm Energy that I read that talked a lot about that. And in particular, what it asked you to do was go through your day and check in every half hour, hour, and just kind of notice what your energy level is like. And frequently, what you'll recognize is that we tend to go through different cycles within the, the span of one day. We'll start off our day and we'll be fairly energetic, and especially depending on our breakfast and our cup of coffee and stuff like that. And then we may have a lull or a lag mid to late morning, right before lunch. And that is a time where we're more susceptible to, quote unquote, our bad influences. Same thing mid-afternoon, you know, that siesta time. We tend to need to either take a nap or do something to wake ourselves up. And so if you really start to drill down and notice all of the different times during the day and in your life when you tend to resort to a maladaptive behavior, you, you oftentimes will realize how much your energy affects it. You know, like when you're turning toward a Red Bull, you know, that may not be the healthiest thing because then you're going to get jittery. It's going to affect your sleep later on, things like that. So it doesn't all have to be drugs and alcohol. It can, it can even be other kinds of lifestyle things that lead us to triggering behaviors in, throughout our day. So you've got this unique skill set from your studies and your practice and you're also running and racing a lot, have you found ways to apply what you've learned in psychotherapy as tools in your practice of endurance sports? I think it, one of the things I love about endurance sports is that you're constantly tweaking and learning. I mean, as you talked about how you've changed over the course of your podcast, we're always adjusting and trying to get a little bit better. And what I have found in recent years is a couple years ago, I was vigorously pursuing Boston. And, and I, as a, a lot of runners do, I kind of had some of the times that indicated that I probably could get there, but I was just falling short in some 
some ways and it, it wasn't happening for me. So I went back and I kind of retooled and I said, you know, what can I do differently? And, and I saw that some of these races, they have pacers out there. So I reached out to a couple races and got involved with some pacing organizations. And this spring, all the races that I'm involved in are pacing gigs. And what that means is that I'm really not running for myself so much as I'm running for other people. And I joke about it's a combination of my day job as a therapist and my passion as a runner because I have to get in shape. I have to be ready for it. But when I'm out there, I'm motivating other people. I'm, I'm there for them. I think one of the best things that can happen to anybody in their life is less of a self-centered focus and more of a focus on what you can provide for others. And that has really taken my running to a, a different place. Yeah, so that's great. I, I can see that being really useful at the tail end of a marathon, but I guess you'd probably hit that wall in a half marathon as well with the people you're pacing, right? Well, and Chris, as you joke about in a lot of your podcasts, it's not just the tail end. It's also how fast you go out because you're all amped up and everybody wants to go out and then they Oftentimes, as, as I think you joked on one of, when I sent you an email about how I did my fastest 5K at the start of, of a half marathon in my early running career, because then I barely held on to finish the half marathon. After the last last 10 miles were the most painful of my life. Yeah, well, you had a good story to tell, though, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's about trying to, to give the person as positive and pleasant a, a running and racing experience as you can. And I think that's why we all suit up on most days. So what are you going to do when you get to that 12-mile mark and you get this poor person who's who's fallen off the pace group and losing hope? What are your strategies going to be? Well, you going to yell at them? You going to go drill sergeant on them? You know, I've done that on my website. There's a picture of me uh, kind of motivating somebody, but I hold his hand and, and encouraging him on. One half marathon, I ran the last mile backwards trying to get everybody to pass me. So, yeah, I'm pretty hoarse by the end of it, but hopefully nobody takes anything that I say personally. It's just there to try and help everybody uh, have a good time. What I'll typically do is, because if you run with me, I'm always coaching. <laughs> uh, in the first part of the race, I'll be, okay, relax, settle down, watch your form, watch your breathing, right. relax, take it easy. And then as you get towards, you don't go drill sergeant on people until you get to the last bit, yeah, right? Exactly. Where emotion actually matters. Yeah, it's an excellent point. I mean, the first 12 miles of a half are, are just about moderating that excitement and enjoying the experience. So I'll do little exercises with them about making funny faces, thanking people that have helped them get to the starting line or get dedicating a mile to somebody that's important in their life, looking around to some of the cops or some of the people who are out there helping and, and giving them a big thank you because that takes your mind off your pain or anxiety and, and helps you refocus on you know the big picture of why we're all out there. Yep. I always make sure to thank the volunteers if I'm able to. So what's our big takeaway here, Greg? What's our top three? Again, I think the biggest thing that, that any of us can learn is, is how to use our life experience to the benefit of others, you know, the greater good. So whether we've all faced adversity, whether it's an addiction, whether it's a tough time, whether it's a running injury, and how can we learn from our own struggles and share the, the wisdom that we've gained and the insight and perspective to help other people run a better path. The other thing is that I, I really appreciate about runners is, in general, it's like a family. I mean, people care about one another. When you're running together, while you might be running or racing somebody else, you're really only racing yourself. 
So realize that on any given day, whenever you're out there, to appreciate the opportunity that you have. We're gifted to be able to get up and put on our shoes and, and get out there. A lot of people don't have that opportunity. And sure. it's really nice to just sit back and say thanks for what we can do. Yeah, yeah. I'm always really hard on myself. And then I'll just sit back and smile and say, hey, look at what you're doing. Yeah, lap, so. lapping everybody on the couch. Yeah. All right, man. We'll let you go. All right. You have a great day. Thanks so much for the opportunity. All right. Cheers. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. What is innovation and why do you care? People often talk about innovation as thinking outside the box, and there's some truth to that. Innovation is very topical right now in the business world. If you Google innovation questions, the first two hits will be an article from Forbes, and then an article from Harvard Business Review. And I didn't find either of these two articles particularly compelling, but it should tell you something about the people who are Googling innovation. The target market of both these organizations is executives who are tasked with running businesses. Why are these movers and shakers, at once the drivers of change and also the protectors of the corporate status quo, interested in innovation? There are two big reasons I can think of. First, innovation is an incredibly high-value activity in an organization if you can do it right. Innovation changes the rules and gives companies massive competitive advantages. And second, because they're scared. They hear the winds of change swirling at the corner office windows and want to figure out how to either harness the power of innovation or mitigate its risk. In the Fortune 500, you need to proactively see what is coming down the highway or you'll end up flat on the sidewalk. One conclusion I'd like to take away is that there's a dynamic tension here between the perceived need for innovation and the ability to understand, apply, and execute it in the executive suite. One of the key starting points for great innovations is finding these points of dynamic tension and creating a product or service to solve them. I just gave you a billion-dollar business idea. You're welcome. Why do companies find it so hard to innovate? Why do they think primarily inside the box? Mostly, I think it's because it's easier and perceived as less risky to work inside the box. There are precedents. There are methodologies. There are others with case studies you can model. If you follow the well-worn path, you can always point to it if someone questions your direction. The innovators don't have that luxury. The well-worn dilemma is that destruction is part of creation. When you follow the innovator's path, you are alone and you don't know where it will end. People have to be very well convinced in your leadership skills to get behind you on that path. Cultures that have grown up around the tenets of protecting the current business and not taking risks have a hard time gathering behind the leader who wants to wander into the unknown. Seth Godin has said that innovation is connecting the dots versus collecting the dots. Connecting the dots isn't obvious. It involves flipping the problem or the situation on its head and looking at it from a new angle. This takes an open mind and an open culture. Is there some combination of forces from disparate disciplines that yield something entirely new? 
In order to answer that question, you need a broad portfolio of knowledge and disciplines. Our current education paths tend to drive practitioners deeper into specific specialties. It is difficult to see the broad spectrum of possibilities when you are blinded by the specificity of your knowledge. How do we design people and companies and careers to innovate? Like most things, it's best started by asking questions, better questions, different types of questions. One that I'm fond of is how do we flip this on its head? But there are a myriad of directions your questions can come from. You can come from the customer's point of view and ask, what makes our customers smile? Or what makes our customers really angry? Both of those should lead you to some dynamic tension that you can innovate into. Another I'm quite fond of is how can we eliminate this entire process? <laughs> how can I take this section of the process and automate it or eliminate it? That's typically an innovation. A simple question is, what's missing? Some of us have had the pleasure of working for an owner or board or CEO who would wait for the meeting topic to run its natural course around the inside of the box and then lean back in their chair and ask that type of question. How could we do twice as much? Why do our customers care? So how do you ease your company or your life into the innovation game? Here's some ideas for you to try on for size. First, try a hopeless, intractable problem. Start there. We all have them. There's that product or team that no matter what we try, they're stuck. No amount of traditional management theory is going to change the facts. For whatever reason, you are trapped, trapped inside the box. Why? Because you're playing by existing rules, and those rules prevent you from winning or maybe even from moving. These stinky problems are usually things that continue to suck resources and energy. They are immune to your efforts. And perhaps counterintuitively, they are a great opportunity for innovation because you aren't going to make them worse. You may kill them off, but they're heading in that direction anyhow. It's actually low risk. So take one of these debilitating black sheep situations and ask the question, what can we do to flip it on its head? How can we break the rules? How can we choose a new ground to compete on that will change the industry and force everyone else to come to us? Another idea is to take a lot of at-bats. Nothing says you have to bet the company on your first innovation efforts. The opposite is true. If you look at companies with successful innovation cultures, they tend to have a large crop of ideas in the incubator at any time. The key with innovation is to start wide. Always have the mouth of the innovation pipeline filled with good and goofy ideas. And then you focus on the winners. At some point in the innovation's life cycle, you'll need to take it out of the nursery and focus on it. Bringing the innovations to market or to fruition is where you focus your process. Don't lose focus and try to do too many innovations at once. Narrow your portfolio of maturing innovations to those that we think will make the biggest difference and make those work. Some well-known innovation companies will set up a new entity specifically for that innovation as it emerges into the light, thus guaranteeing the innovation doesn't get lost in the existing corporate silos. Some have well-defined vetting and gate processes to ensure the focusing is enabled. But it is always a challenge not to kill the infant innovations in their cradle, so we need to balance the process to be selective 
not preventative. You can also seed your organization with people of difference. A bigger challenge to innovation in a company is people, not process. It's hard to force innovation through a long-tenure culture of homogeneity. The savvy leader will strategically introduce different thinkers into the mix. Either through hiring or consulting, these players will be outsiders who can ask innovative questions. Innovation is about changing the rules, not following them. In your business, in your life, where are the big, intractable problems that you could change the rules on? Where is the dynamic tension that cries out for innovation? How can you flip it on its head? Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. That's it, my friends. Let the credits roll as we gracefully taper our way out of episode 4-337 of the Run Run Live podcast. With any luck, this episode will drop on Friday before Boston. Remember, Boston, being the special one-of-a-kind unicorn that it is, is held on a Monday. That is Monday the 18th. Then I have to turn my cranky old self around and pull off the Groton Road Race the following weekend. I'm starting back into a fairly heavy travel schedule, so that should keep me busy. After Boston, I've got my Grand Canyon adventure planned for the middle of May. And I told Coach I'd run the Portland Marathon with him in the fall, but I really don't have any athletic goals for the summer. I'd consider a trail 50K if I could find an interesting one. I want to get off the road, and I've never raced the 50K distance, so that would be something new for me. And I think that's what my future agenda is going to skew towards, new and interesting stuff. You still have time to support my Team Hoyt campaign for Boston. Links are in the show notes. Of course, April 24th is the Groton Road Race, and you can run it virtually if you're not in the area, or show up and say hi. Just go to grottenroadrace.com. We took a crew of club members out on Saturday and cleaned up all the trash on one section of the 10K course to make it pretty for you. I'll admit I'm a bit stressed out this week because, you know, beyond all of this, I still have a job and a family and a home and an old dog to take care of. <laughs> I took Buddy to the vet and they thought he was fine. I have a regularly scheduled appointment in June and we'll decide whether we want to remove the big fatty tumor in the armpit of his back leg that seems to be impinging on his range of motion. He's happy. He still gets out. And ironically, this week, as I'm laying low into Boston, he'll get plenty of walks around the neighborhood. Hey, if all he can do is give hugs, that's okay with us. So who out there has seen the original Batman movie? I'm not talking about Michael Keaton in the 80s. I'm talking about the campy one they made from the TV show in 1966. You can get it on Amazon Prime for free. <laughs> In one of the scenes, they have Batman, played by Adam West, trying to get rid of a bomb. And the bomb is one of those uh, ones like in the cartoons, like a cannonball-shaped thing with a fuse burning. And Batman has the bomb in his hands, and he's running around the piers on the waterfront trying to get rid of it. And the gag is that every time he goes to throw it off the pier there's something in the way, like a boat full of people or a flock of ducks. So he's running around with this smoking bomb and he can't get rid of it. 
I had a workout like that last week. <laughs> Coach scheduled a little tune-up workout of three sets of three by 200 meters, all out with 20-second rest in between and three minutes between the sets. It's basically a lactic acid buffering workout, fine-tuning for the race. And compared to what I've been doing, that's an easy workout, maybe three to four miles total, even with the warm-up and cool-down. I was working from home, and of course, the day got away from me, and it was getting into the afternoon before I got ready to go. I was coming off a delayed flight from Chicago the night before and was a bit jet-lagged. I figured I'd head down to the track and knock it out. I drove down to the track, and much to my surprise and frustration, there was a track meet in progress. Who do these people think they are using my track? I had to go to plan B. I figured I'd just knock them out in my neighborhood. But, of course, my neighborhood doesn't have the 200 meters marked off. I had to go back to my desk and program this workout into my Garmin. It took a few minutes to do this because the workout is a bit detailed in structure. Then I synced to my watch and headed out. I ran around a 2K warm-up and hit the button to start the first 200. And I'm going all out on these, 99% effort, which for my neighbors, I'm sure looked like I was having some sort of fit in the road. Now, I've done enough track workout to know how far approximately 200 meters is. And I got to that point and the watch didn't go off. Now I'm thinking, did I enter 200 meters into the watch or 300 meters? Because there's a big difference for this workout. I turn around and I do another one back to where I started. And now I'm pretty sure the distance is wrong. No problems. I'll check the watch and see what it says. Well, the problem is that in order to do that, I have to stop the workout and crap. I stop the workout and start editing it on the watch. And I still can't tell what it says because the watch has converted everything to miles. And even though I'm a smart guy, I don't know how to convert 200 or 300 meters to 1.19 blah, blah, blah miles. So I have to change the watch and the default measuring to metric. And then I see that I indeed programmed 300 meters instead of 200 meters. That's not going to work. So back to the house, log back into Garmin Connect, fix the workout, resync, back out the door. The actual workout really wasn't that bad, but it fought me all day. It was a test of wills, and I wasn't going to let it win. And in the end, this easy 30 to 40-minute workout probably chewed up two hours of my afternoon, <laughs> just like Adam West trying to get rid of that smoking bomb. And I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. It's hard to force innovation through a long tenure culture of homogeneity. That's a hard word to say. Let me try it again. Through... <clears throat> It's hard to force innovation through a long-tenure culture of homogeneity. Geneity. I'm going to try it one more time. <laughs> it's hard to force innovation through a long-tenure culture of... Ho of <laughs> Fourth time's a charm. <laughs> 
it's hard to force innovation through a long-tenure culture of homogeneity. 